all. If you're new, we've been kind of working through uh, the Bible starting at the beginning uh, with the book of Genesis and kind of the big idea of Genesis, uh, which literally means beginning or same word we get for genetics, how all this started, is that God created all humans for a specific purpose, and that was for us to know him, be connected to him, find life in him, find support by him, all those things. And then the other side of Genesis is how bad we continue to mess that up. And so uh, for months, we were just kind of working through the book of Genesis, and we were looking at a couple very specific key words that we just kind of understood and kind of, kind of leaning into in terms of understanding who God is. And the first one was covenant. And what covenant means is it's a promise from God to us that's without stipulations. Different than contract. Contract has stipulation. Covenant means God is always going to do what he promises. So in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I am going to make you a blessing so that you can be a blessing to all people. And I will have my way in your life and in your family and in your world from this point all the way through to uh, eternity into the future, right? That's just God's plan always. And one of the neat things is God decided to do that through people who are broken, really broken, just like us. And so God will always do what he promises. So when we read through his scriptures, if God says it, you can just count on it to be true. So for those of us who kind of live in the, the Christian world, we can go, oh, yep, in this world we'll have trouble. Jesus tells us that. But uh, take heart, take courage, because Jesus says he's overcome the world. And he tells us there will be a day way into the future, um, that there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, and everything will be good, and everything will be right. In fact, that when you cry, have pain in your life, even this week, if you've experienced things, you go, that's just, that just doesn't seem right. That is actually an indication that there's something wrong in this world, and as we began the, the, the book of Genesis months and months ago, kind of the the understanding was this world that we live in and operate in is not the world that God originally designed. So God creates this perfect world, and then human beings come right into it and mess it up. Same way we continue to do that. And so every time we feel sadness, every time we shed a tear, that's literally a reminder that this is not the world God designed. And yet, as a result of covenant, one day we'll get to experience that again. So a big word that we learned early on was covenant. The other one is providence. Um, when I talk about providence, there's a couple things I want you to see. I want you to always see an eyeball, meaning God sees all things. That's what providence means. And a hand, and God is working in all things, and a heart. And as he's seeing all things and working in all things, he's doing it with deep compassion and deep love for his children. And so we've just kind of been working through that. And so where we find ourselves in the book of Exodus is where God's people, whom he loved, called according to his purpose, and his children, right, this, this, um, case study of people who God loves. I want to show you that that's what he wants to do for the entire world. He takes these people, calls them the Israelites, and they live in this horrific roller coaster. They're up and they're down, and sometimes they think God's really good. Sometimes they think he's really bad. Sometimes they're begging him to intervene in their lives, and other times they're saying, God, we got it from here. And throughout the kind of the story, the Israelites continue to say, okay, God, come save us. God saves them. And then kind of the next step is always, okay, God, we got it from here. And then things would get bad again, and they would cry back out to God, God, please save us. And God would come in and save the day, and then they'd go, we got it from here. So very similar to how we operate with God. In fact, many of us are in this room right now because you made a promise to God. God, if you'd save my marriage, if, you'd, uh, if you would get me that job, then I will worship you. I'll go to church or whatever that is. And here you are trying to keep your other end of the bargain right here. So you're saying, okay, God, you did what you're supposed to, so now I'm going to do what I'm supposed to. And the problem with all that is um, we're not very good at keeping our commitments in fact, we're really good at expecting other people to keep their commitments really bad at keeping our own, right? Some of you are still paying for a gym membership you haven't used since January, right? Because you had this great hope that you would do it all the time, and then you get to January 7th, and you're going, nope, and you have lots of reasons. Your schedule's busy. The gym was too crowded. It's not crowded anymore, guys. Promise, right? <laughs> and so we just have all these plans that we want to do, and so we say, God, we'll do this, we'll do this, and we'll do this, and then eventually all the promises we make, we leave um, empty, and yet God— and that word providence is always seeing all things, always working in all things, and always compassionately caring about us. And he is, as we've been talking about for months now, he is bending and shaping all things, all things, bending and shaping all things for our good at all times and his glory. Just always what's going on. Which uh, last week we got to see that basically the Israelites were freed out of captivity, and now they're wondering on what should have been a, um, about an 11-day journey into this place, this place promise that God had for him, what he referred to as the promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey. And now we've, they found themselves in there. And as Moses said, about 45 days, and they're whining and complaining. They're saying they're hungry, so they're, God, we're so hungry. And God, in his graciousness, 
gives them food. Now we're so thirsty, God in his graciousness continues to give them water until they are grumblers and complainers and whiners, and they are not very appreciative. And yet God continues to come through for them. So we got to see that last week. Go back and listen to the sermon if you'd like to. But it leads to kind of a, a pretty important question. Is does God always come through? Like if we continue to grumble and complain, is God always just going to come through for us? Like the Israelites weren't very thankful. They were belligerent at times towards Moses and definitely towards God, right? And yet God still provided them with the needs they had. And so we kind of understood that, uh, it's, uh, that the goal with God is to meet him and know him and be with him every day. And God always gives us enough for every single day. But is there going to be a time where he stops giving us that? Like, can we always ask? Can we always come through? Is there something about our behavior that could actually thwart or stop God? About that? Is God eventually going to lose his temper with us? I mean, right, you got the idea, and he talks about himself as being a really, really good God, and what he refers to himself as is a father, which is complicated for a lot of us, depending on our experience with our earthly fathers, and we have these ideas of, okay, even with our fathers, at some point, some point, you can, um, you can press a button long enough, and finally, the father's going to lose it. I shared with you a couple weeks back. Um, I whined and complained that I had to drive my dad's beater of a car for a couple weeks when my car is in the shop. And I whined and complained that I had to drive his car that did not have, I mean, this is ridiculous, right? I don't, can't believe he made me do it. Didn't have air conditioning or power steering. And he made me drive his car, right? Because he got to drive the rental car. And finally, after whining and complaining, the only time in the history of my life that I can remember my dad raising his voice at me and telling me that I was selfish and unaware and a brat. I don't know what he was thinking. None of them were true. I was a very godly son, right? And, right? At some point, you finally press enough buttons. You're going, at some point, is that if we continue to talk to God the way that we do and deal with God the way that we do, is at some point, is he just going to go, okay, enough's enough? Right? So we're going to kind of look at that today in terms of God's grace. And I use words like always. He always bends and shapes all things for our good and his glory. But how exactly does he do that? And does he ever, if that's the case, then why do you see in the Old Testament where generations of people are just wiped out? God is always good. How is that good for them? And so that's what we'll get to kind of tackle today. And just want to be really upfront with you. This, um, this message is kind of like three parts. Um, there's the really bad news, then the good news and the great news kind of all fall together. And so we're going to start with the bad news. And so at times I'm going to be really probably blunt with you about our behavior and some things that probably should change. If you're not a Christian, don't believe in this stuff. Just know that I'm not preaching at you and any of this. I'm actually talking to those of us who believe that God is loving and gracious and that we're his children. So we got to talk about that. And so if you don't believe in this stuff, I'm glad you're here. Um, Really, really glad you're here and be happy to chat with you about any of the stuff or any of our staff would. Back of that bulletin that you've got in front of you, you can jot your name or number down and say you'd like to chat with one of us. We'd love to. No pressure. We're not doing, uh, you know, um, bait and switch. I will tell you that I get an extra $1,000 for every convert. So <laughs> I'm just joking. I don't. I don't at all. Uh, which is ridiculous, guys. We would have a lot of converts if we could add that to my, to my, my package, right? So, um, so we're going to look at these people, and the reality is there's some people that God, uh, you know, the idea of the Israelites is God's doing a couple things always. He's always providing his provision. That's the food. That's the water. And he's always providing his protection. That means uh, he actually tells us in Exodus 14, you don't have to fight. Just be still, for it's the Lord who fights for you. So God is this God, this perfect father who's always providing for his kids. He's always getting, providing, gives them the, his provision, and he gives them his protection. But you're going to see throughout the scriptures where God is going to remove that banner of provision, remove that banner of protection, and it's going to go really badly for some people for a while, and so we're just going to try to figure out why that's the case. And the folks we're going to be looking at today are the Israelites, God's people, kind of God's case study, and a different group of people, the Amalekites, okay? And it's going to go really badly for them, and God's going to do the heavy lifting, and there's going to be a war, and he says he's going to wipe out the entire generation. So this might be the God you're not interested in. You go, yep, that's the God I've heard about. We probably should figure out why he does these things. So we just find ourselves immediately following the place where God doesn't strike the Israelites, which he could have. Instead, he strikes the rock, which he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is representative of Jesus, who he's going to strike his own son to pay the price that we deserve to pay. And so he strikes this rock, and all of a sudden there's this beautiful water flowing, and, you know, this living water is now provided to these Israelites, and they're drinking. And as they're drinking, and finally they have food and water, and life is 
good for them. And immediately, immediately, in the very next verse, goes to a group of people who are going to come and wage a war against God's people. Now remember, um, at this point, the Israelites are nomads. They don't have their own land. They're trying to get to a land, but they're not ready for that land. I mean, they wouldn't be able to receive that land, appreciate that land. They're still pretty arrogant, and they still are pretty entitled. And so God's doing some uh, pretty significant work in their life. And so these Amalekites are going to show up. They're also a nomadic group, and the Amalekites are not going to like that these Israelites are going to have food and water and on their kind of their nomadic area, and so they're going to wage war, which is interesting because just two months prior, this story is going everywhere now that God waged a war against the Egyptians who had kind of oppressed um, the Israelites. Now, as I say this, I understand, and I even agree with some of you if, you, if you go, this feels a little bit like a folklore or myth or legend, all these weird stories. I'm going to just stay with me. This is not folklore or myth or legend. This is a true story with true people in it, which creates um, some confusion, but I hope even some empathy and compassion and awareness for us. So immediately they've drank some water, and now these new people are going to uh, encroach. This is Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse Eight, and it's going to be up here on the screens. I'm reading from the New International Version today, if that's something that you're interested in knowing. Here goes. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Okay, these guys are about to destroy you. Hey, uh, Moses, you need to get, uh, says to Joshua, one of his, like he's like his apprentice. He's going to be his predecessor and all this, right? Or successor, sorry. He's going to be his successor and all this. And so he says, Joshua, go choose your best. And we got to protect our people, right? Uh, tomorrow, I will stand up on uh, top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Okay, thanks, Moses. I'm going to go fight. You're going to stand there with a staff. Doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And so Moses going, uh, uh, you get your people. I'm going to stand up with a staff. And you'll see why in just a second. Here's what happens next. Verse 10. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. So you got Joshua, who's going to be the successor to Moses, but he's a general, he's a mighty warrior, and so he's got his, he's got his tribe, right? He's got his, um, his, you know, military with him, and so he's taking these guys to fight. Moses goes up on top of a hill, and he takes kind of the priestly people, his brother and uh, uh, another servant up there to go uh, stand on top of a hill with a staff, right? Now this is what it says. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. So, something to just point out here and tell you, it's so, so confusing. You'll see this later um, when Joshua finally, I mean, we're talking about, you know, years later that Joshua's going to take the entire Israelites in the promised land and kind of the first thing they're going to deal with is Jericho, you know. Some of you know the song, Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, and God's going to tell Joshua that they're going to conquer it and he's going to give them some interesting um, advice. And, you know, in any military thing, you, you don't have a lot of options. You stand in front of this big wall that's, you know, around the city, and either you can go over it, right, go over it and fight. You can go under it. You can go through it. Or your only option would be to take, like, I don't know, a Trojan horse, some kind of spy, send them in and kind of infiltrate it from within. And that's just military strategy. Those are kind of your options there. And God tells them not to do any of that stuff. Instead, he says, march around the outside with instruments, Right? Let the band handle this. And so they march around. They got the, you know, you know, you know, for the, and so they've got the tenor drum, and they got the tubas, and they're marching around, which is really, really, really poor war strategy, right? Even we understand you're supposed to, the sneak attacks, the, the infiltration, the in the middle of the night stuff, that's what you want to do. The ambush, that's how you defeat the enemy, particularly if they're larger and they're on their home front. God basically says, march around, make as much noise as you possibly can. Let them know you're here. And then in this one moment, they blow their horns, and all of a sudden, the walls come tumbling down. And it's like, that's really strange. Unless you could see it from a different perspective, which is, you look at God throughout history, he's always stacking the deck against himself. Where there is no, could be no conclusion or possibility that it's actually human beings on their own who are able to do this. Right? So when God is doing something, it's really important that he gets the credit. 
right? Even Exodus 14, hey, don't do anything. Just stand still for it's the Lord who fights. So in this moment, what God is doing is he's going, look, I'm going to show you how silly this works. There's a dude who's going to stand up with his arms. As they come down, they're going to start to lose. And as they go back up, it's going to start winning. If you've seen Elf, you know what I'm talking about? You got Elf and they're like, the sleigh's not going to work unless we get enough spirit cheer, right? And all of a sudden, when there's all the cheer, the sleigh works. When the cheer stops, it starts to dwindle. It's kind of that, but with real people in a war. And so there's this fight. And as Aaron, or Moses' hands, and he's so tired and so exhausting. So he's holding up the staff, and his buddies are holding up each arm. And, and why is that happening? And I just would point out that God in this moment is wanting these folks in all human history to understand that he is the one who's doing the heavy lifting, right? This is not a brilliant war strategy. This isn't Sun Tzu's art of war, right? This is none of that kind of stuff. This is in its own flesh. This is very, very poor strategery. You follow me? This is not good stuff in this moment, and yet what we see here is God is going to win, and uh, based on them holding their hands. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. Now imagine this. Imagine when you get back to camp. These three guys are whining, like, oh, it was so tiring. Like, we had to hold the hands up. And, you know, Aaron and, uh, you know, uh, Ben-Hur are going, it got really, really dangerous for a second. We were working really hard. And all these dudes who are really in the war are looking at them like they're crazy, right? These three dudes sitting up on a hill are talking about, you know, how, what they had to do to do, make this happen. Verse 13, so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it. So he says, to make sure he understands this, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. So there's this war. These guys are trying to punish God's people. God as a father is going, no, no, nobody does damage to my people. And he makes this promise here. And if you're not, don't do the church thing. This is the kind of stuff you go, this is just so confusing. I don't even understand this. And God says he's going to blot out the name of this dude named Amalek. You know, some things to know about Amalek. Um, Amalek, uh, so, you know the story of Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac, right? And so that whole idea of covenant and promise is God is going to use a person in every generation to show this, this archetype, this type of human being that represents God's provision, but they're just still human. So God uses Abraham to show his, his entire family and all the, the people that he's going to provide. Then God uses his son Isaac to do the same. And then Isaac has these two sons named Jacob and Esau, Right? And so Esau's the oldest. Usually he'd be the one with the birthright, but God decides to show that he can use the lesser of the two people to do his work, right? Because God gets all the credit. And so God is going to bless one of the two of them. Now, in the story, Jacob manipulates his father to get this blessing. But the scripture also tells us that Esau wasn't really interested in the blessing. In fact, what it says is um, Esau uh, held a defiance or contempt towards the blessing. He didn't want his dad's blessing. He thought he could do it on his own. He was self-reliant. Jacob was weak. He was strong. And through all this manipulation, Jacob gets the blessing kind of towards the end of Esau, or J, J, um, I'm sorry, yeah, towards the end of Isaac's life. That's Esau's dad. Finally, Esau goes, oh, no, I did actually want that. My dad was the provider for us. And he goes back to get it. It's too late. And kind of this, this um, separation and this conflict happens from Jacob and Esau and their families. So Jacob starts having kids. He has these 12 kids. Those become the 12 tribes of Israel. So this whole nation that God establishes is through Jacob's lineage. Esau starts having kids and some of their kids uh, he has. One of them's out of wedlock and to someone in his concubine. That's one of his extra ladies. Has this, this kid named Amalek. Now one of Jacob's other uh, one of Esau's other wives has a kid who has a kid named um, Jethro. We're also going to learn about. So through Esau's lineage, there's these people that they're defiant. They think it's about their duty and their own self-preservation and their own success. So you have God's people who forget at times but continue to remember that God is the one doing the heavy lifting. And then you have this whole generation of people that still think it's up to them, that they can take matters in their own hands. They can manipulate and control. And so these Amalekites from the lineage of Amalek, are these people. They go, and they're basically just pirates. They destroy people. They do what they want. They get what they want, and they see people as an end to their means, right? So the first thing that sin does is it tells us that we are stronger or greater than God, and the first residual thing that happens as a result of sin is we start using other people for our pleasure, right? You see it all the way back with Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and so you got these two different groups. One group who's 
struggling by trying to please God, the Israelites, and this whole other group, the Amalekites, the Midianites, the Ishmaelites, all these people who are going, nope, we take matters in our own hand. We don't need a God. We're our own God. We're about our own success, and we are going to conquer whatever we need to. So these two different groups, and as you can imagine, one wants to give God credit, even though they struggle with it. One believes God is the one who provides blessing, like Jacob did, even though they manipulate to get it. And this other group that doesn't really care about the blessing because they're really confident they can do what they want to and don't need God's help. In fact, if God would just leave them alone, things would be better for them. And that's this whole other group of people. So God looks in and says, hey, Joshua needs to know this. Write this down. Those people, those people who think they can have it all by themselves, they're going to get some real awareness because what's going to happen, God's going to have two different groups of people. Those who struggle, like many of us, and yet say God is the source of comfort. God is the source of blessing. And he's going to continue to give his provision and his protection to those people. Now, this whole other group of people, God's going, okay, you want your wish. You want to show that you can have it on your own. You want to show how tough you are. You want to show how capable you are. Okay, if you want to pretend like there's a world that I don't exist in, then I'm going to pluck away my provision. I'm going to take away my protection. And you're just going to live in a world where, where you don't have to experience the wrath of what happens when my protection and my provision are taken away. So what God is saying to Joshua here is, hey, your people, they still have my protection. They still have my provision because they understand that it's really my world and I'm still the one in charge and I am the source of all good things. This other group, in their arrogance, in their defiance, they actually believe they can do these things on their own. So, you know that. So this is a pretty common thing, and we understand this in our world. And, and when every single human being is born onto our, in our world, all of us, you get this, they're all 100% absolutely selfish. So when you welcome that little slimy baby into this world, that little thing, that little human being, is the most selfish human being in the entire world. You know this, right? They just use the bathroom wherever they want to and expect you to clean it up after them. They're hungry at three in the morning. They scream. They're not going, huh, mom and dad are tired and this is going to have lots of damage on my parents' marriage, right? But who cares? Because I want to be woken up and soothed, right? The second, right? When you have little babies, little bitty, tiny infants, they are the most selfish human beings in the world, Right? You don't want to say it that way because you're nicer than I am, but you also think babies are cute. They're not cute. They look like little aliens. You're like, oh, so cute. The head comes out all deformed. You're like, oh, so cute. That is not cute. One day they might become cute, but they're not cute then, right? I remember looking back at my son, who I thought was cute then, at those pictures, and he's so gangly, and his arms are so long, and no one tells you that's what the belly button's going to look like for that long, right? And this is like, what is this stuff, right? And they just scream at you, and they yell at you, and you know what they don't ever say? Thank you thank you, right? That's why I finally, about nine months, when the, my kiddos started to recognize me and coo and caw and recognize that I'm their dad and their source of provision, right? Then I started to like them. Those first nine months, it makes no sense. They're just selfish, right? But what we hope happens, and we do hope happens, and this does happen, is eventually they start growing out of that selfishness. Now, for some of us, it takes a long time. I was sharing in a prayer class a couple of weeks ago. I dated the same girl all through high school, so from my freshman through senior year, and then a couple years of college. And I, so as a result, since I dated her so long, knew her family really well, I would eat dinner at her, uh, at her parents' at her house three, four nights a week, right? And I, would, I, would, I was a growing teenage boy, and I would raid their fridge for anything, like plums, pears, whatever it is. I just felt like everything in their house was fair game for me to eat, right? And so I would eat, and I'd eat a lot of their food. And they, you know, would cook nice things like steak, and I would eat more than anybody else. Like, I would eat all their food. And you know what I didn't say? Thank you. Six years of probably eating, I, I kid you not, I thought about one day, I tallied it up, thought I'd write them a check for all that they provided for me and thought, no, I, I can't do that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> right? Like, six years, I just assumed, because they were the adult and I was the teenager, it just made sense to me that they would provide for me. Right? Just in that arrogance. Right? And some of you, you're in that world right now, and hopefully one day you'll get out of it. It took me to the point that I was 21, had my own things, and paying for my own food, that I realized that cost a lot of money. Right? Eventually, there becomes this awareness. There's this progression from complete selfishness to hopefully one day we understand that it's not about us, that it's not about those things, and we start actually being aware of other people and what's going on in their world. Right? So for the longest time, we, even, we have words for this, like egocentricism. 
And at, the, at its core, the word egocentrism means if I can see the TV, everybody else must be able to see the TV, right? You remember? Oh, you guys have big TVs now up on walls. But when we were young, they were those console TVs. You know what I'm talking about? And they had a little bitty screen in it. And you would go and you'd sit. And you couldn't see from far away. So you'd have to sit and you'd get really close to the TV. Console TV, you'd sit. Crisscross applesauce. That's the correct terminology now. Okay, this is 2019. Crisscross applesauce, you'd sit there, and you'd stare at the TV, and you'd see everything. You know, no one behind you could see anything, but in your world, because you could see it, everyone must be able to see it, right? And so eventually you grow out, hopefully, of that egocentrism, right? And so the solution when you're arrogant and you're selfish, right, is one of two things. Either you're going to be that way your whole life, or the reason you're that way is just you're ignorant, so the solution to ignorance is just education. The solution to ignorance is just giving some awareness to what's going on. Then when you get that awareness, you can do one of two things with it. You can go, oh, something should change for me. Boy, was I arrogant. Boy, was I selfish. Man, I should say thank you. Man, I should repent of those things. So as a result of the information, you go out of ignorance, as a result of awareness, and you do one of two things. Your behavior changes, your mindset changes, or you walk in this arrogant defiance and eventually, you'll be all alone. You'll be all alone. This, you need to be a Christian to get this. If you live that way for the rest of your life, you will spend Christmas. And you will spend your birthday all alone. That'll happen. And that is happening for some of us because we cannot get out of our own world and our own selfishness. So when you look at these Amalekites, they're these folks who were born into a lot of protection and provision. But they never ever got it that it wasn't about them and they weren't the ones doing the real performing they never got that it was actually someone else paying for the pears and the plums and the steak, right? And so God looks at these people and he goes, the only solution for them is to remove the protection, remove the provision, and either they're, we're going, they're going to get some awareness and what's going to, something's going to change. The word that we use for that in the Christian world is repentance. There's going to be a change of thoughts and therefore a change of behavior, or they're going to walk into defiance. So I tell you all the time, Tim Keller says, God does not send people to hell. But if you spend your whole life telling God you want nothing to do with him, you don't want his protection, you don't want his provision, you're fine on your own, you got it from here, eventually you'll get your wish. And when you get your wish, you'll be all alone and in pain. And what the scripture tells us in Philippians, that there will be a day where every single person will finally get that they weren't the boss. It says... There will be a day where every single man, woman, child will confess with their tongue. It says some on the earth, some above the earth, some below the earth. That they will confess that Jesus is Lord. They will profess that he was the one who provided the provision and the protection. And so God is going to remove those things from these people and give them what they asked for. And so here goes. We continue. So God tells that to Joshua, verse 15, and this is what it says. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my covering. The Lord's the one who's in charge. And watch this. He said, see this? Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now this is what you got to understand about God. So I want you to see this picture. This is a very clear picture. It says, because those people, they literally... They've got some awareness now. And remember, you get, you get some awareness and one of two things happens. Either you repent and you go, not about me, wasn't about me, boy, is I selfish, how in the world could I live that way? Or you can go, nope, and you stand in defiance, right? And sometimes I say some pretty offensive things, and I want you to hear this. Like, these people are either standing with their fist in front of God in resistance, or they're standing with their hand the other way with the middle finger up in defiance going, God, we want nothing to do with you. So these are people going, they're literally, the pictures, they are standing in resistance and defiance and going, God, we want nothing to do with you. And literally, there's an entire world of people. And some of us are sitting in this room with that posture. And you go, well, why would God care? Okay, let's go back to the father imagery. So imagine you create this little home for your kid and care so deeply for them. And they get up to 15, 16. They're still not thankful for anything. And they just look at you and go, hey, dad, hey, mom, I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with you. Oh, I understand you created this environment. In fact, what would be best for me is if you would just go and die and just leave me all the things. Just leave me all the things. I don't want you. I want your things. I don't want you. I want what you've created in my world, right? Could you imagine? Some of you have experienced that pain. 
Could you imagine that pain? Oh, no, no, God, I want nothing. Hey, Father, I want nothing to do with you. I'm not interested in you. I just want your inheritance, right? And literally what we're saying to God, either because we don't believe he exists, and in our mind, we actually think we've created all this, which you don't, you don't create it all, right? All energy, all of it sustained by a big ball of gas way out in the distance. You get that, right? There is no more energy being created. It all starts there. And it either feeds plants that feed animals and feed us, right? It all starts somewhere else. We are not doing that work. And yet in our world, we go, no, no, we want nothing to do with it. We just, we just want to enjoy the things. We just want to enjoy the things. We don't want anything to do with you, want any relationship with you, Father. We just want your things. We just want your things. We're literally saying, it says in Romans, that God has made himself known through creation and people have chosen to worship creation rather than the creator. So we're, many of us are standing with our hands in defiance, our resistance going, we want nothing to do with you. We just want your things. There's a story about this in the New Testament, Luke chapter 15. It's a parable where God gives us a story and he talks about the this, this son who does exactly that. He goes, dad, I want nothing to do with you. I just want your things. And the father's gracious and he gives them his things. And so the son walks away. It's called the prodigal son. And you know what happens when he walks away? When he walks away, he walks away from love and provision and protection. And the father allows it. Why does he allow it? Because hopefully, boy, that kid is so arrogant. That kid is so defiant. Maybe, maybe, maybe they're, they're just ignorant. And maybe if they can get some awareness, maybe they can get some awareness and go, it wasn't me who was the provider. It wasn't me who was the protector. It was the, the father, right? Maybe they can get that stuff. And so there's this moment of awareness that happens for this, this kid. He's literally, he's a, he's a slave in someone else's quarters, right? And he finds himself as a Jew who doesn't even respect pigs, envying a pig's life. He's literally hands and foot. Just like the, the pigs are eating the same food and saying the pigs eat better than I do. And in that moment, in that moment where all the protection, all the provision was removed, he got some awareness. And his awareness was, my dad actually was good. And while I walked away from any kind of sonship, my dad treats his slaves, his servants, better than I am now treated without protection and provision. And so that guy and his awareness has some conclusions that he makes. This is the word repentance. And he has some changes in his thoughts and therefore changes his behavior. And he returns home. And what he finds when he returns home, because the protection and provision was removed, he comes back. And in that moment, he's greeted by his father, who shames himself and pulling up his, you know, his, his skirt and sprinting out and meets his kid out in the distance. And then reuses all of his inheritance, all the stuff he has, and repurposes it back to welcome the kid back in. All because this kid finally... Got some awareness. So in this moment, what you see is God goes, these Amalekites, they don't want my provision. They don't want my protection. So I'll remove it. So I just offer this to you. Some of us are living in a really, really painful world. Some of that is because our world is really broken. And some of that is because we have told God that we got it from here. And a really nice little survey, and I'll get nicer in just a second, but I feel like this is really important to understand. A really nice little survey is to kind of Kind of take all the things in your life that you got. And then think about the parts of your life, whether that's your marriage, your finances, your family, your job. Those parts that just are creating a ton of pain and sorrow in your life. And then in that, go, is this a place that I've not surrendered and asked God to provide his provision and protection for me? Is, are these places? Is my marriage off limits to God? Is my thought life off limits to God? Is the things I look at, the things I do, the things I say, are those things off limits to God? Is my job off limits to God? Is, is my finances, is my money, is that just off limits to God? And I just would argue in the places that you have told God that those things are off limits, his provision, his protection is removed. Not because he doesn't love you, but because the best thing he can possibly do is help you grow up and get some understanding and some awareness. And hopefully that awareness that we're his provision and protection. Maybe you go, God, I want nothing to do with you in my marriage. I don't want to change anything. I'm going to keep looking at that. I'm going to keep doing that. God, I want nothing to do with my finances. I'm not trusting you with anything. It's all mine. It's all mine. And in those areas where you just have lots of chaos in your life, so just say, perhaps, perhaps. And there's a lot of other reasons, guys. So not every bit of pain in our life is a result of our behavior. But I would just say the first place to start and all that stuff in your job, in your marriage, in your family, in, all, in, in your finances, is this a place that you've told God that you don't really need him because you got it from here? 
And is this a place where you've experienced those things? And perhaps if you've experienced the lack of provision, lack of protection, perhaps it's not because God is angry or mean, but because he so desperately wants you to understand he's the source and provision and the source of protection for you. And so you see this story in literally an entire generation. An entire family tree gets wiped out because of their behavior. Now what's really neat here is God is then going to give you a picture of someone else from also from Esau's family who all this is going to change. So you have this one guy. You have, you have Amalek. Now one of Amalek's cousins is a guy named Jethro. Now Jethro has a long history. In fact, you can trace him. He mentioned through a different name in the Quran. Like J- J- uh, uh, so this guy named Jethro comes from, comes from Esau's lineage, comes from Ishmael's lineage. And so he has this whole different side. So he basically is mentioned as a prophet in his early age, as a prophet for Islam. Right? This is a guy who is leading his own life, walking away from God, doing his own thing. And all of a sudden he finds himself connected to Moses because his daughter, Zipporah, is going to be married to Moses. And we find Jethro, we see him earlier in the scriptures. He's referred to as a priest in Midian. So this is a Gentile. This is a non-Christian guy who's created his own religion and done his own thing and may or may not be experiencing the pain and sorrow from that. So remember, we just had this whole generation of Amalek, Amalek, Amalekites, sorry. Um, and then we have Amalekites. There it is. Whew. And then we have this whole other side, Jethro's family, and you're going to see some pretty interesting things happen here. So this is just the next verse. Just going on. This starts chapter 18. And now we're going to see this other dude, and that's what it says. No, Jethro... The priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses heard of everything God had done for Moses. Okay, so this guy, this is Moses' father. He's going, oh, I'm hearing about this God who offers provision, this God who offers protection, and for his people Israel. So God is a good father providing good gifts to his children. Even though they're still growing up, even though they still have some selfishness, they're continuing to gain some awareness. They're continuing to understand that God is their source of comfort. God is their source of provision. God is their source of protection, right? And his people, and how the Lord had brought them out of Egypt. So we now know this guy named Jethro. He is a, he's a pagan priest, right? He is leading people astray in this, these false worship habits, right? This self-help guru tells you if you do certain things in a certain way, the God of the universe will be appeased by you, right? So verse 2, after Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son named Gershom, for Moses said, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. So he uh, talks about his plight by naming his kids interesting names. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. So Moses literally names his kids about God's provision God's protection. So Moses is leading the Israelites, all sorts of mess. He sends his wife and kids to stay at the in-laws while all this stuff is going down, right? So that's where we have it. Now they're in this new place. They're freed from Egypt. They've now been freed from this new war with the Melekites. And so now it's time for the family to be reunited. So verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' son and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. So Jethro goes, okay, now it's time for my daughter and her kids to be reunited with their father. So he's going to go, and it says this. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Now, if you've ever tried to travel with kids, they can't buckle themselves, right? Such a pain. So Jethro's smart and going, if i got to get this news to Moses, if we go together, it's going to take us a long time. So let me send one person, just one person, who can go ahead, and we'll tell Moses all about it, and then he'll be prepared for us because we need a place for these kids to sleep and these to be separate than my room. I'm tired of these grandkids, or whatever that is, right? Verse 7, I, that, I made that up. It's not in the scriptures. I'm sure it should have been in uh, terms of how life was going for them in that moment. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. So this is a t- uh, respect. That's how you should always greet your um, father-in-laws. So that's I'm going to make sure my daughters know with their husbands. They bow down and kiss. Here's what it says. Exodus 18, verse 7. Here's the toes. Here you go, right? They greeted each other and they went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Okay, this is a pagan guy and all of a sudden Moses is talking about Yahweh, the God who always provides, right? So these are two different worldviews and Moses is explaining all this. Now, how does Jethro feel about this? This is not his God. This is a different God. This is not his false God. It's the one that helped pay his mortgage. This is a different God altogether. So you go, oh, let's see how Jethro responds. Is he like Amalek, his, you know, his uh, first cousin? We'll see. And so here's what happens next. Verse 9. Jethro was delighted. Okay. Huh. 
get some awareness, and all of a sudden it says he's delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. So all of a sudden, he gets some new information through a story that's going on, and all of a sudden it says he's delighted. He's excited that his son is all safe, excited that things are going well, and he's you know, probably curious about what's going on. He gets some new information, and he's got to do something with that information, right? He's got to do something with this information. He was ignorant to this Yahweh God. Now he gets some information. He's got to make some decisions with it. That's how repentance starts. Okay, you got to have some new thoughts. So watch what happens. Verse 10. He said, now this is a lot different than Amalek. Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and the Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. No, no, real, real quickly. We tend, I tend to teach gene, pretty generalized and at times because uh, the scripture is a lot more uh, nuanced than this. But at times I find myself kind of operating in this reductionistic category where I'm just trying to boil it all down to these like two categories or whatever else. So I don't want to always do that because I think it's a lot more nuanced, but I, I think this is accurate, okay? Um, when we look at God, when we consider God, the God of the universe, I'm pretty certain based on what I read in this passage is what I see in scriptures and in life that there really are only two categories of people. So what that means is for every single person in this room right now, there's really only two categories. There's either people who raise their hands in resistance and defiance to the God of the universe. I got it from here, God. I'm not interested in you in my life. You're either doing that. Maybe you're not doing it in such an offensive way with your middle finger up, but you're going, God, I'm not interested in you. I just want your things. I just want to enjoy creation. I don't think you're really out there. I don't think you're really protector or provider. I just want my own thing, right? So either you're raising your hand, either consciously or subconsciously, in defiance and resistance, or, or, on the other category, you're raising your hand in praise. You're either raising your hand in defiance and resistance. I'm not interested in you, God. I want nothing to do with you. And maybe you're not doing it categorically in every part of your life. It's just some parts of your life you're going, nope, that's off limits, God. That's off limits. And I'd go, whoa, that's a really dangerous place to be. Because either we're all in in this kingdom thing. We're going, God is the source of protection. God is the source of provision. God is the source of comfort. Or we are saying there is something greater than that God who's that source. Whether that's someone else, something else, or ourselves. So categorically, we're either in one of two categories. Either we are standing in defiance of God and resistance to God with our hand raised as a fist. Or we're standing before God in our hand of praise. I understand that's really, really offensive, and boy, I want to be gracious here, and would love to have longer conversations with you. But I can't find a third category in our world. I just can't. And so what happens in this moment, remember, Jethro was a guy who stood in defiance, not interested in the God of the universe, not interested in your protection or provision. I got my own little, I got my own little religion, the way I eat, the way I pay things, the way I provide, the way that I operate in some checklists. It's enough for me. Then all of a sudden, this moment, what it says here is that he said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and Pharaoh and who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, right? Who rescued you from them. So in this moment, he turns his hands of resistance and defiance to a hands of praise. And this is what he says. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel. See that word? Arrogantly. So it's actually in God removing his protection, his provision, right? These Amalekites, they don't get it. They have no emotional intelligence. They have no self-awareness, and they are just walking straight off a cliff into their own demise. And Jethro, looking into this, knowing his cousins, he's going, man, I see it now. They were operating so arrogantly. It literally was God removing those things that was bringing some awareness to a group of people. And Jethro turns from this pagan God worshiper and says, no, 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 I know the Lord. Oh, it's the Lord. The Lord. That means boss, the one in charge, the, the hero of the story. The Lord is greater than all other gods. And this is it. This, I want you to see the beautiful picture of salvation that I hope happens for all of us, right? Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. This is important. You're going to see sacrifices offered. There's a couple things happening every time you make a sacrifice. When that sacrifice is happening, what you're saying is, God, you're greater than my greatest things. And those sacrifices always required innocence to be, uh, blood to be shed. So he's going to slaughter some animals in this. And he's going to go, I understand that there are consequences to sin. And I understand that this is just a band-aid. I understand that this is a band-aid. But God, in this moment, I'm going to say you're greater than my greatest sacrifices. And I'm going to acknowledge that my behavior has caused innocence to be shed. No, that's foreshadowing to Jesus as the innocent God who's going to step down and pay the price for us. And so there is sacrifice. And watch what happens after the sacrifice. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. You see this? Fellowship always follows this pattern, right? And so God goes, here's what's going to happen for you, Jethro. Not only am I going to bring you 
my provision and protection, but I'm also going to bring you into community, right? And so we've got to understand this, guys, as a church, for those of us who believe this, what always follows salvation is real fellowship, which is why we've got to make bigger tables, which is why you've got to use your home in a better way where you're inviting people in, which is why we've got to create more space for Wednesday nights for more people as they're starting to understand that there is a God who provides, and some of the way he provides is through his children, Right? And so fellowship, community, breaking bread, those always follow salvation. So you see this perfect picture of salvation in Jethro. He goes, nope, God is greater. I'm going to tell him that he's greater than my greatest things. He makes him sacrifice. He repents. He acknowledges that he can't save himself. And then what happens immediately is he is brought into community. And so they have this beautiful meal together. And what I love the most, it says, in the presence of God. So all of a sudden, what God had in the beginning God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the Trinity, that perfect fellowship and perfect love and perfect connection, God then ushers in the minute that Jethro does it. Oh, you can be welcomed in our presence as well. Now watch this. Really, really interesting. So that's really neat. So that's, so bad news is, yep, when we stand in defiance of God, he removes his provision and protection. The reason being is he wants you to get some awareness. And he certainly hopes that awareness leads to some repentance, some change in the way you think, and therefore some change in your behavior. And we see that clearly. Good news is Jethro gets this, and he turns back towards God, and God meets him like the prodigal son's dad and welcomes him back into fellowship. But what's really crazy about all this is it's not like now all of a sudden Jethro just has nothing to offer, and he's got to start all over. It's like he's not like burning his CDs and selling his, or, and, and uh, ripping up his hard rock t-shirts or whatever it is, right? So it's not like all of a sudden he's got to do all this stuff because part of you is going, well, I really want to change. I really want that, but does that mean I walk away from everything? Does that mean I have to be this brand new person? I got to part my hair, tuck in my shirt. I got to go to church 17 times a week, or whatever, you know, all these different things. So watch this. Watch what God has always been doing in Jethro's life because we got some complications for the Israelites here. So I'm going to read this really fast and kind of help you understand it. Verse 13. The next Next day, so all that happens, Jethro's in fellowship. Now, he's a priest, a pagan priest, by the way, but he has some understanding about organizational leadership and structure, all those different things. So he now shows up, verse 13, the next day, Moses took a seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. So Moses is at work, and he's standing from meeting with people. When his father-in-law, who had some experience, he's an older guy, has a shepherd, he's a priest, right? Um, When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? That's good. He saw it. No, he asked. Now watch this. Why do you alone sit as a judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered them, because the people came to me to seek God's will. So Moses has this, this continued pattern of thinking. God saves people. No, it's my job to fix them, right? It's God who saves, but we got to disciple them, right? Somehow God leaves the picture and all that, right? So he's like, I got to fix them. I got to fix them because the people of God come to see me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties to inform them of God's decrees and instructions, right? So you get this thing. So Jethro's going, hey, can I ask you why you're so tired right doing this? Moses goes, well, it's a, it's a hard job being a priest. It's a hard job being, you know, the CEO of Israel, all right? It's a, it's a hard job. And so Jethro's going to offer some advice, and that's what he says. Moses' father-in-law replied, what are you doing here is not good. It's not good. You and these people who came to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. See this last part? You can't handle it alone. So the other part of the idea that what's about to happen is Jethro is going to use all of experience long before Jesus shows up in his life, right? And he's going to you now offer that experience to the church. He's going to go, hey, there's a better way to do these things. In fact, what, what God is about to do is he's preparing them to receive God's words. You're about to see the Ten Commandments. All the laws, they're about to be set up here. And so before all that happens, God's at work creating kind of a church structure. Right? And so he's going to use Jethro because Jethro has experience long before he became a Christian and some understanding. So now that Jethro's been redeemed, now that Jethro's got this, he's now going to use his gifts and understanding to participate in what matters most, the restoration of the kingdom. Right? It's not like Jethro starts over. He brings all that he's ever done. Now he's bringing it into community in the kingdom and watch what happens here. Listen to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representatives before God and bring their disputes to him. No, teach them his degrees and instructions. That's what this is right here, guys. That's what we're doing right now, right? And show them the way they are to live and they'll how they are to behave. So he's going, hey, Moses, you've got some responsibilities. Here they are. You've got to teach. You've got to help guide them. But you can't do it all. But select capable men. Now, this is before Jesus comes up and redefines human value. And he's going he's to bring women up to the front. He's going to rise them to the occasion in the, in the first century when women were being mistreated and abused. He's going to give them a name and give them dignity. And he's going to start using women to transform things. In fact, Mary is the one who shares the good news of the resurrection first. So where it says men, that's Old Testament, old understanding of how culture works. Jesus redeems this. Jesus is the first feminist, right? So Jesus comes and defines these things. So he says, uh, but select capable 
men, I'm going to translate here for the New Testament, human beings from all the people, human beings who fear God, trustworthy human beings who ate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. There's a, there's a better way. Some of you can lead thousands, some of you can lead hundreds, some of you can lead fifties, some of you can lead tens, but all of you should be leading someone. And so he's going to give that declaration, have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The, simply, the simple cases they can decide themselves that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do these things and God so commands, you'll be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. You will be able to stand the strain. Because there are 80,000 people within 10 miles of this church who have no idea that there's a God who loves them and provides for them, and they are standing with their hands raised in resistance. And it probably is because they're unaware. I think of the story where, um, of, the, of the, this Ethiopian official, this eunuch, and he's reading the scriptures in Isaiah, and Philip, another dude, goes, do you understand what's going on? And his response is, how can I understand this if no one teaches me? There are 80,000 people who are standing in defiance, and probably because they're standing in front of the TV thinking if they can see the TV, everybody else can see the TV. And the reality is the solution to most of that is just some some information, just some education, just some awareness. Every single man, woman, and child should at least get to the opportunity to either accept or reject these claims that Jesus makes. So how do we do that? Well, the only way is for all of us to feel a burden in it, which is why we're trying to create a Saturday night service, which is why there's a board out there and we're going, every single one of you, we need you to jump in on this long before you have it all figured out because here's the really neat thing. Long before you came to this conclusion that Jesus was Lord, God was already preparing you for these things. Long before Jethro got that, God was already giving him the story of how the church was going to be set up. You get this, right? He takes a pagan, possibly a, a Muslim in this deal. Like long before this, he takes a pagan God who does not believe that Jesus is Lord. And he's already given him information to help shape these things so that when all of a sudden he got the awareness and he takes his hand no longer in defiance and instead raises it in praise. And in that moment he gets to bring in his experience, bring in his uh, understanding, bring in his education, and all use it for what matters in this world. So I'd say please, 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 please. As you repent and start thinking of God as your source of protection and provision and comfort, please don't withhold the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years of your life that God has been setting up and preparing for you to use for his glory and for your good. So there are things that you can offer and things that you can do that God has been planning long before this. God was literally taking this pagan priest to set up the structure that we have thousands of years later for the church. So please don't withhold that. So here's kind of the end and the band's going to come up. Guys, there's only two positions. One is lifting our hands and defiance and resistance or lifting it in praise. And I love this thought about why you lift your hands. I'm not trying to get, convince you to lift your hands while you sing. But we're going to sing this song. And what we're going to talk about is God is always going to fight for his children. He's always going to protect them. You see that with the Malachites. God's going to protect his children. God's going to provide his comfort. He's going to provide his provision. He's going to provide his protection. But when you think about why you lift your hands, the reason you lift your hands, one is to volunteer, right? Oh, yep, I'm ready, God. Another one is to ask to seek an answer, right? Okay, I don't understand, but I'm going to raise my hand in front of the one who does understand, and I'm going to seek an answer. Or the other reason we lift our hands is in surrender, going, I am so tired of being in charge, God. I, my life is a mess. I am so tired. Or the fourth reason we lift our hands. So either we lift our hands to volunteer, lift our hands to find an answer, lift our hands and surrender, or the fourth one, which I think is the most beautiful. It's what I still love my five-year-old will do. She lifts her hands. Why? Because she wants me to pick her up. So either we're standing in resistance and defiance or we're standing on, hey, Heavenly Father, we believe you're good. We believe you're God and we want you to protect us. We want you to fight for us. We want to be your children and what we want more than anything is to be brought into this connection and fellowship in the way that it was always meant to be. So, get some awareness. Either you can go, nope, I'm not interested. I just want God's things. I just want his creation. And I'll tell you, God's going to remove provision. He's going to remove protection. Not because he's mad at you, not because he hates you, but he wants you to have some awareness. Or you can get some awareness and go, okay, God, I repent. I'm not in charge. I want you to be your child. I want to be welcomed to your family. And so we're going to sing this song together as we close. Would you stand with me as we sing?